0: Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we all share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher and I have a great session for you in this week's episode, so let's jump right in. Are you looking for the best resources to help you build a regenerative lifestyle? New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 30 years. They publish good news and solutions for individuals and organizations seeking to change their lives so that they may change the world for the better. Their company mandate goes far beyond the single bottom line of profit. They care deeply not only about what they publish, but also how they do business. They believe in the authors that they take on and the works that they bring to the marketplace. From sustainable living to progressive parenting, New Society Publishers has the books you need to help build a better world. Buy your print and e-books online at www.newsociety.com or at fine bookstores near you. All right, today's guest, Ted Breingar, is pushing the boundaries of natural and regenerative low-cost housing with his nonprofit organization called Foxhole Homes. Now, these Earthship-inspired homes are designed to serve the needs of homeless veterans, but also to help redefine what kind of lifestyle that's possible on a very limited income. Foxhole homes are designed to be entirely off-grid and to produce much of their own food as well. In this interview, Ted explains the inspiration behind the holistically regenerative design of the structures, with a whole slew of low-cost appropriate technology working to make the most of every resource and bit of energy as well. We get into how they keep costs down by salvaging and recycling materials, and we talk about the larger vision for complete communities in the future as well. Now, Ted is a very inspiring speaker who unloads a ton of practical information in this session, so grab your notebooks and let's dive right on in. Hey, Ted, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you doing?
1: I am great. It's, it's great to be with you. Um, lots of exciting stuff going on on our end of the world.
0: Yeah, definitely sounds like it. So why don't we just get into the questions right away because I've got a ton of stuff I'd love to ask you. Fire away. Perfect. So to start us off, could you tell us a little bit about your personal background, how you got into natural building, and what inspired you to form the company of Foxhole Homes?
1: Sure. Um, so on on the natural building end, I've been fascinated with that since I was a kid. My, my family... Um, Growing up, we did a lot of service projects, kind of working down in Mexico, helping out there, and so I got to build a lot of Adobe, um, kind of as a teenager down there. And um, I've just always been, um, my whole life, kind of fascinated with um, the idea of traditional natural building techniques. Um, and but I never did it for a living, right? It was just, it was just kind of a, a, a side interest. Um, and I worked whenever I could, kind of just doing community service projects with with that. Um, as far as foxhole homes, uh, well, along those lines, I bumped into Earthship Biotecture in the mid '90s um, when I was working as the out direct director at Fort Carson um, up in Colorado Springs, working for the Army. And but the thing that really kind of inspired me to do foxhole. Um, it was actually, well, coming up on four years ago, uh, I had uh, moved to New Mexico and thought, man, I, I want to take my wife up to Earthship so that she can check it out. Um, because I was like, you know, hey, honey, let's build one of these for ourselves. Um, but my wife, despite being from Colorado, gets cold easy. So I, I joke that if she sees snow on television, she goes to get a sweatshirt. Um, so I thought, well, I'll take her up to Earthship. We'll go um, and and kind of prove that this works. And so we went um uh went up there for a weekend, and that night that we got there, a cold front blew in and it was 13 degrees with a sustained 30 mile an hour north wind. And I thought, man, there's no way this thing is gonna be, you know, in a house with no heating system at all. And I thought, there's no way this thing is gonna be comfortable enough for Elizabeth. And Um, we woke up in the morning and it was 72 degrees and the floor was even warmer than that and radiating heat up into the space. And it was just amazing. And I thought to myself, I want one of these, but there are a lot of veterans who are kind of on the bubble who need that technology to be able to create a more stable lives for themselves. And so literally that was on Martin Luther King day four years ago. And I had a dream. I said, you know, I've for vets. And and that's what started the adventure.
0: Fantastic. So could you tell us a little bit about what a foxhole home is specifically? And how did you come up with the vision of creating regenerative housing specifically for veterans?
1: Yeah. So, I I mean, a foxhole home specifically, right? I mean, the, we're... Our designs are based on the principles of Earthship Biotexture. And I know you had Rowan on, um, relatively recently. And so I'm not going to belabor that too much, but I'll hit them quick, right? So, uh, principle number one, you're building out of recycled, repurposed and locally available materials. Uh, principles number two and three have to do with the sun. That is, you're generating your power with the sun and you're heating and cooling. The home with the sun, and then the last three principles basically have to do with water. But you're catching water off the roof, uh, you're treating water with systems within the home so that there is little or no fluid discharge from the system as a whole. And finally, you're growing food, and so and those are just straight the kind of the Earthship biotecture principles. And so we've taken those principles and come up with some designs that are um more regionally appropriate for where we are for the difference in climate, um, and also are focused on on being able to be built inexpensively. And then of course the, the name uh, foxhole has the military connotation, right of you know, being in a foxhole, but it actually um, it actually the, the inspiration for the name comes from a story where this this lawyer came up to Jesus and said, "I want to follow you." And Jesus response was, Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Um, uh, Jesus was homeless. Uh, But that same phrase was also a really powerfully political statement in that uh, the king at the time, uh, his nickname was the fox. And so it was a reference to how the the rich and powerful a lot of times take care of themselves, um, but they leave other folks locked out of the system. And certainly that has become the case For a lot of veterans and um, we're trying to um, adapt the system and work in ways that allow folks to take care of themselves. Fantastic. Yeah, that's
0: very important. So could you walk me through the design of one of your already built Foxhole homes? What types of natural and recycled materials do you use in the construction? And what are some of the main components of the structure?
1: Sure. And so, so what, um, the, the ones that we've done so far have been built very similar to, um, earthship systems where we're using rammed earth tires for our primary wall structures. Um, some, and then we're trying to use just as much recycled and repurposed material as we can. So, um, our ceilings are made out of old pallet wood, but that are cut into kind of a herringbone pattern, uh, both to take maximum use of the, uh, the amount of material that you have to fit well between, you know, ceiling rafters on two foot centers, um, but also to kind of create some visual interest. Our insulation in the ceiling is actually corrugated cardboard that we cut to fit perfectly between the rafters and then wrap in a flame retardant foil barrier to take care of both the vapor barrier piece as well as create additional um, fireproof uh, um fire resistance in that system we're using uh you know bottle bricks much like earthship on a lot of our south walls for whatever we can't find recycled or salvaged glass for um we're using of course the interior finishes of the home are are adobe or, or cob um you know earthen earthen plasters on the inside and then on the front of the home the thing that we've done that's really different from what earthship has done where they've had a full glassed in second greenhouse. We're just using traditional high tunnel greenhouse hoops to create the greenhouse space on the front. And that allows us in our much hotter climate than what they have up in Taos is, uh, you know, we could put greenhouse plastic on it in the winter time and then switch over to shade cloth in the summer, which is really critical as far South as we are because you would just, you know, on a day when it's 110 outside, um, if you had you know, greenhouse plastic on that in the summertime, goodness, it'd be, you know, you'd, you'd kill every plant on the inside. And so we've created that system that's adaptable in between summer and winter to be appropriate kind of year round and still keep the cost way down.
0: Fantastic. Yeah, I, that's what I was going to say. I would imagine you save a lot in not having to either salvage or buy the glazing for that much glass work as well.
1: Yeah, so far, we've spent zero money on glass on any, on, on, on the two builds that we've done so far, um, just by by being able to do, use salvage stuff or, um, you know, bottle bricks in between where those are. And in fact, our first demonstration build, which is a tiny, I mean, it's tiny house. So 120 square feet of interior floor space, 240 square foot of greenhouse, but it's got a little kitchenette, composting toilet, um, you know, a, a, a simple shower bag system, but with a French drain in the floor that feeds out into planter beds in the greenhouse, the whole thing, the material cost for that build to include cisterns, solar system, everything was $5,800.
0: Fantastic. I I really like that you emphasize the smaller living space because I mean, that's something that I harp on a lot in my own courses, no matter how sustainable or regenerative the materials that you use in the construction are, you're never going to have a very efficient structure if it's uh, oversized, if yeah, if, if you've got a bunch of unused empty space that you're trying to heat, you're trying to air condition or trying to bring energy into that's fantastic.
1: Yeah, designing down is a is a really, really key principle. And we have to be really intentional to ask ourselves, what is it that we really need our house to do for us? What what are the functions that it needs to have? And how do we live? And and do we need to make a few kind of design considerations to adapt that a little bit? Okay, you know, okay, so I entertain once in a while. Do I need my house to be big enough to do that? Or can I just do that with a covered patio? Right. And, and, and keep that much simpler in the process. And so those are all things to, to consider as you go, that allows you to, to simplify upfront. And, um and I think that's a really important principle that if we get it right, ends up creating a lot of freedom, because we're not living to serve our material possessions. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the things that movements like the tiny house movement have really explored and pioneered. I realize that a lot of people are not able to move into a square footage quite that small. But what they've done is that they've showed that with a small amount of space and with really good design, you can make what are basically referred to as like convertible spaces. So it can be the kitchen. It can also be the dining room. It can also be the you know, where you sleep. Just by moving around a couple of key components and by using those principles, you can still have a larger space uh, that serves multiple functions, but you don't need then a separate room or a separate space for every single one of those functions.
1: Yeah, just a few critical ones where where privacy becomes an issue, right? And, yeah, of course. And- Those are, those are considerations as family sizes grow and all of those things that you've got to consider. And, and, and our, a design that we're working on that we're hoping will be kind of our standard, uh, kind of footprint for, for most of our stuff coming up for, for long-term housing for folks, um, will be based on about a 600 square foot, uh, model. And, uh, and we're doing that because with the amount of rain that we get here, that's the amount of roof space we need in order to catch enough water to do the system sustainably. And so lots of different factors kind of come together. But but designing down and keeping those spaces as small as they can be and simple is absolutely critical for being able to afford to do it. Um,
0: yeah, absolutely. And that's true for anybody, whether it's a you know veterans housing project or even just trying to get your own house up especially when you're a novice builder. A lot of people yep. get very over-ambitious. I'm sure you've seen this happen too in courses and stuff. Start, start small. Yeah, absolutely. Always start small. So, tell me a little bit about the appropriate technologies and the regenerative systems that you've put into the design that help the residents to take care of their own needs and to provide for themselves.
1: So, so again, that's going to kind of very much follow the Earthship system. So, We're, we're heating and cooling this, the system with the sun, right? Starting with heating and cooling. Typically, that's the most energy consumptive part of a home is, is maintaining the climate. And our first build that we, uh, and our first kind of demonstration build is we've been monitoring that over the last several years. Um, the first winter that we built it, it was for, Southern New Mexico standards, it was cold. We had routinely had nighttime lows in the teens. Um, during that time, after we got the building, kind of the thermal mass of the building charged up initially, the, the interior temperature of the home never dropped below 72 degrees. Um, this last summer, we had two weeks straight where it was almost 110 degrees. The interior space of the home never got above 80 um, with no power input at all, just the design of the home. Um, and some passive cooling systems that we've, that we've designed to be specifically appropriate for this area. But so that's, that's one of the first big things is that we're not paying for heating and cooling. And the house does that. It's on, on its own. It catches water, right? Um, so that we're not having to, I mean, we're having to augment it a little bit because we are in a desert, but the majority of our water needs are just met from rainfall. Um, naturally in the area. Another um, big principle is that in the water treatment side, we're growing food um, in the process. And that uh, enables folks to to really take care of themselves. But I think another kind of big principle um, and specifically part of what works for veterans is that there's a huge piece of our world where the consequences for our behavior are far removed from the actions themselves, and somebody who's lived this really kinetic life of of you know combat, um, it's hard to get them motivated sometimes to do anything if there's no immediate need to do it, and the houses are built in such a way, and the the, the systems work great. But they require that we interact with them. But what that does is that really encourages the the occupants, the vets, to live in the moment. Because if I don't go open event, it's going to get too hot. If I don't go close event, it's going to get too cold. And then at some level, literally the house itself and living in this intentional, in-the-moment way that's required with these passive systems, it the house literally becomes a therapeutic tool. And, uh, and, and, and actually a diagnostic tool because I can just walk by somebody's house and know if they're not doing the things that they need to do to operate it well, it gives me some insight into how they're doing individually and allows us without being too invasive moment to moment, be able to help keep track of folks and make sure that they're doing okay psychologically as well.
0: That's a remarkable insight. And I'm really glad you brought it up. Um, One of the few compromises that switching to these regenerative systems for providing for comfort and needs in a house is that, you know, you may not be paying for some sort of energy to come in and run your systems. But the trade-off is that you've got to maintain them. You have to be a little bit more active in how they're kept up. And because most of these end up being quite customized to the people living in them, there's a lot of little intricacies that you'll figure out over time on how to run things optimally. And it really requires more participation. And like you said, being in the moment in order to run the systems uh, at their at their peak. And yeah like you like you mentioned also, it's a it's almost a practice in meditation in participation further into your own living systems, uh, being aware of the weather outside, the comfort level of your body, how your energy consumption either through devices or uh, water needs for the plants that you're taking care of are currently asking for. and I feel like this reconnect is, you know, probably bit of an adjustment for someone who's not used to living in such a participatory environment. But I know for myself, when I have lived in those environments, um, the power to reconnect you to your place and to your time is absolutely invaluable once you get used to it. And I think that's a really fantastic thing to promote, not as sort of a compromise, as if, you know, uh, it were a downside because, you know, you're not using energy but rather as something to strive for and actually aspire to in reconnecting with your living environment.
1: Yeah, and that I mean it can be a catch 22 one of one of uh, Kenny one of the engineering professors at New Mexico State University that we work with all the time uh, as we're working on developing some of the systems he says the problem with passive homes is that they're for active people, right? <laughs> you know, we we've got <laughs> That's a- <laughs> really well said. But we've, we've got to participate in them. And on some levels, we are working towards some automation of some of the basic systems using Arduino technology and that kind of stuff um, for the long term. But on the front side, as we're getting people in, um, we're very, very intentionally keeping those automation pieces out um, for the therapeutic value of helping people stay engaged. um and 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 using that as this very very intentional tool because certainly um, in in a deployment situation in a combat situation life is you know very very intentional in these very very small things but without consequences in kind of our modern environment it's very easy for these folks to check out completely and so um, designing the home where it requires that interaction becomes a really, really constructive thing to help them re-engage.
0: Excellent. So how does your project and design help to address the specific needs of veterans who might be dealing with a variety of disabilities or limitations in order to lead
1: abundant lives? Sure. So I, I want to kind of talk about that from from a couple of different standpoints. By all um, means. The, the first and most important is the best people to take care of veterans are other veterans. And so the, the most important aspect of what we're doing is that it is a veteran community that, um, where, where veterans can take care of and support one another because nobody understands their needs like they do. Um, and very often, I mean, I'm super excited about the technology that we're developing and all of that, but I tell people very frequently that's just a tool. Right. You know, the, the earthship technology, um, the, the, you know, the housing technologies that we're developing, even some of the permaculture work that we're doing. Those are tools. The purpose of this is to create a space where veterans can support one another. So that's the most important thing. Um, but on the other side of it, as we move forward, I think I want to talk about, um, the situation that's created the abundance of homelessness in our area. And I kind of want to frame it. In uh, the terms of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if you're familiar with that kind of basic cycle. Right. So at the, at at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs is physiological needs. And we're talking basic stuff, eat, sleep, poop, right? Like super, super basic things. And for a, and I'm going to talk about a combat veteran, but they're only a, an example of anybody who's been through significant trauma. Um, and, and has lived in these kind of survival situations, whether that was from abuse or any other thing, right? So the person who's lived in that environment, you know, in this kind of dangerous environment for any long period of time, um, you know, and, and I'm going to use, I live in Alamogordo, New Mexico. It's the second, it has the second lowest property crime in the entire state of New Mexico. The climate is nice. Um, you know, you're, you're rarely you know, in danger of death from exposure, either by hot or cold. Um, you know, if you can just, you know, I mean, just, so it's not. It's sorry, not a terribly is,
0: inhospitable place to live. Yeah,
1: ex- exactly, exactly. And so somebody who's literally lived in a combat environment where people were shooting at them, right? Or, you, you know, or, or I've I'm, I'm kind of, or it's, for somebody who's lived sleeping in the dirt, Eaten MREs and that kind of thing. Um, you know, having those basic phys- physiological needs met, that's not terribly complicated here, right? Right. <laughs> you know, um, that, that's actually pretty easy. Um, and then the next layer up has to do with safety, but safety is actually divided into two parts, literal physical safety and then, and, For, like I said, for the combat vet who's used to somebody shooting at them, right? This place doesn't feel dangerous at all, right? And then, but the flip side of that has to do with stability. And that is, is your situation stable over the long term? And so someone who, um, right now in America, it takes on average between 110 and 115 hours per month of work at minimum wage to rent and keep utilities going in the smallest apartment in the town.
0: Yeah, that's unfortunate.
1: (laughs) When you consider that full-time work is only 160, at best, you're talking about somebody having 50 hours left to feed, clothe, transport, take care of medical needs, all these other things. That's not sustainable in itself, much less if you consider that somebody has Physical limitations, whether that's medical or psychological, um, that's not a that that system isn't stable for the long term. And at that point, homelessness becomes a rational choice because it's more stable, and the other needs, the basic physiological needs and the safety needs, aren't out of whack. Being homeless. And so it actually becomes a rational choice. And then if we take that a level further, which the next is kind of that kind of love and belonging piece, somebody who's literally living hand to mouth their, you know, kind of what's the, uh, the, their ability to, um, you know, maintain good relationships is really, really limited. And a lot of our homeless population, they, they've, they're kind of a pretty tight little tribe and they support one another very well. And at that point, the irony is the homeless person living on the street is actually higher on Maslow's hierarchy of needs than many of us who are just struggling to survive. And yeah, that, that point, really flips it on its head. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, a really, it's a really rational choice at that point. And that's really screwed up. Absolutely. that, That from from a really validated psychological profile standpoint, right? That that it makes more sense to be homeless, and so that's what we're trying to do. Is we're trying to create a situation where that's no longer rational. That there is another choice that makes sense, that is stable, that still allows them some dignity and a way to work in community, where you know the relationships and the belonging can happen and even more that we can help them continue to work up that hierarchy toward you know self-fulfillment and, and self-actualization um, with with you know exploring their skills and interests and all of those other things in time. Now uh, and and so that that system as a whole has to work to enable the continuation up Maslow's hierarchy, right? Um, as as just a simple way to explain it, um, that is what we're doing. And everything else, all, all of the all of the technology, whether that's in housing or permaculture or you know cottage Fantastic. industries. Um, now
0: let's uh, take a switch for just a moment and talk a little bit about some of the nuts and bolts of making this happen. Can you tell me about what are some of the costs associated with building and operating a foxhole home? And how have you gotten the construction affordable without sacrificing quality?
1: Yeah, so um, we, there's <laughs> we have there's there's a maxim in the construction world. Uh, you've got three things in construction: good, fast, and cheap. You can have two. Oh, I
0: love this! <laughs> I go over this so much <laughs> so, in all the courses that I teach.
1: <laughs> right, and so so yeah, so I'm preaching to the preacher here, I'm sure. But um, the so. So far we have been on the good and cheap path, but that means that it's slow, right? Absolutely. Um, Because we're using volunteer labor and we're just doing it as we can do it. Um, and because, because that eliminates the labor, the labor cost in things. And, um, and so that's, that's probably the biggest principle of it, right? Um, another thing that, uh, that, that we're trying to do has to do with the design side of it. And that is, really focusing on using recycled and repurposed materials as much as possible. And at some level, I mean, people ask me all the time, what's the most expensive part of an Earthship? And yeah, I say, yeah. it's the part that you have to pay for. Right. <laughs> right. And what that what that means is that as much as possible we're looking for the materials that are available in our environment and then designing the home or the building around those materials. So, so for example, somebody just gave us some, you know, some trusses um, from, you know, that, that hadn't been used. Well, you know, those trusses are going to define the size of a workshop that hopefully we're going to start building, you know, late February or early March. But the building literally is getting designed around those roof trusses because that was what was available. The front face of that building is getting designed around glass that we were able to salvage out of a building that was being demolished. And we got, I mean, huge, you know, six foot high between three and five foot wide, you know, double pane plate glass windows that we were, you know, we're fortunate enough to be able to salvage out of a window. Well, that's going to define what the front face of that building looks like um, so that we can use those materials well. And so designing around what's available is probably the most important piece to keeping those costs down. But I need to kind of caveat that really quickly. And this piece, um, and I'll I'll kind of – re this i think in one of the questions that you're going to ask later but the other thing that you've got to consider is the um what what regulatory environment are you working in and and what can you do well in that environment and so if one of the challenges with using weird materials and that kind of thing is that a lot of times there's additional engineering costs in that if it's a fully permitted building. And so that's something that you've got to take into account um, as well. Um, in fact, I, I like to say to people if they're, you know, talking about thinking about the design process for themselves is there's, there's three different or two main environments that you've got to think about and then one constraint on your part the constraint on your part is your budget right and and that has to do both with time and money right um, but then on the environmental side is there's two environments that we've got to work with one is the natural bi- environment like you know the climate and all of that but the other is the regulatory environment that you're in and so you've got to figure and, and the regulatory environment is often the more complicated one to address, right? Certainly. Um, and so, and so you've got to take that into consideration as you're going. We have been incredibly fortunate, um, to have a really great working partnership with New Mexico State University. Um, and so their whole, I sometimes I joke that their whole engineering department works for Foxhole because they have been so incredibly generous to help us um with some engineering uh work so that we can validate some of the more experimental methodologies that we're using up front um you know where where you know the engineers are willing to stamp that and and that has allowed us to um keep the costs down without sacrificing performance like so for example um they were super excited about what we did with the cardboard as insulation in the roof Right. I mean, homeless people have been using cardboard as insulation for a long time. But, you know, with their help, we're able to literally validate it's R value performance in that application um, and and confirm that it's going to be safe because of the way that we're doing it with the flame retardant foil barrier and all of that stuff. And voila, here we go. I was, you know, our first building was able to insulate the entire roof of the building for less than a 100 bucks. Where where in a normal build, like using conventional insulations, that would have been very near a thousand dollars to get the same performance out of it that we were able to use. And so taking yeah, taking the time to do the work on the science end of it, um, is a way that we can do that inexpensively without sacrificing performance. But in some regulatory environments, that's gonna require some work with an engineer, and if you've got to pay that then all of a sudden you've got this kind of catch-22 situation that you're working in. But like I said, we've been really, really fortunate um, to have this cooperative effort with New Mexico State University that's allowed us to validate a bunch of that science up front.
0: Well, on that note, and I know you touched on this a little bit earlier with uh, the hierarchy of needs and helping to provide for people beyond just the physical and needs-based needs based Requirements for life. Tell me about the larger vision of the Foxhole Home Community and what you're trying to achieve with the synchronization of multiple homes into a small community.
1: Yeah. So I mean, I, I, I just kind of reiterate what I said before, right? All of these other things that we're putting in the community are really tools toward the end. Of community, the thing that's really going to help veterans is that community piece. And so, inside that community, there's going to be several different sets of stuff that are going to help make all that work. Um, the main part, of course, is the veteran community itself. Um, other things that for the for the veterans that will help that work, we have a uh, we have an arroyo fan or we're an intermittent stream bed, kind of just soaks into the desert going through the middle of our property, which is a floodplain. Um, but we're going to turn that into a big food forest. Um, and we have more or less a Mediterranean climate. So we're looking at figs and pomegranates and olives and that kind of stuff as the, as kind of the the foundation species, um, inside that we'll have a whole section that's dedicated to cottage industry and having workshop spaces so that people can work when they're well, um, Something that I just kind of touched on, um, the reality for a lot of disabled veterans. And again, whether that's a physical disability or, um, or mental challenges, the possibility of them working a normal 40 hour a week job is almost non-existent. And so we're really striving toward both on the permaculture and or greenhouse. We hope to have some farm to market kind of stuff within the community, CSA kind of stuff. Um, uh, or, or the cottage industry piece design work that veterans can do while they're well that will allow them to have some income to meet the needs that aren't taken care of within the housing system itself. So it's this combination of having these simplified housing systems that not, are, not only are inexpensive to build, but have almost zero utility costs, you know, after they're operating well. Um, so that that cost of living is super, super low. And then to have, um, work that they're able to do that's realistic for them to kind of meet those needs, um, the rest of the time, some other things that we'll be doing to kind of help support that, um, we'll be building some furnished rentals, um, for the area, the, the air force base that's very near here is primarily a training base. And so they're training pilots um, and those pilots right now are getting paid, you know, many of them are getting paid 65 bucks a night for six to nine months at a time to stay in hotels in town. Well, I'm about to launder me some government money. Wow. Right, You know, create them. Yeah, right. To, to create some furnished rentals that will basically function as hotels that. These pilots that are here for training can choose to stay here, knowing that the proceeds from that will then help to keep the community going um, and and moving forward. Um, And then um, we have been able to, um, here in Otero County, if folks are familiar with Earthship, you're probably familiar with the Sustainable Development Task Site Act Act. That Mike Reynolds got passed in the state of New Mexico. Um, We have worked to get a local version of that law passed that has um, even kind of some more teeth. It's got stronger wording to allow us to continue to use those experimental buildings for the long term, which isn't perfectly clear in the state version. Um, And so we will also be working on, on doing research Um, and one of the, one of the research projects that we're going to be working on and this reoccurring theme that, um, as I go up to Earthship Biotech and work with those folks, talk to veterans that are going to Earthship, a reoccurring theme there that many of them said is the reason that I'm here at Earthship, you know, going to the Earthship Academy, learning how to do this is I want to be able to take this technology back to the countries where I fought and help heal the land that I was part of kind of destroying. And, um, and, and that started to kind of resonate with me. And I started to look into that and started to look into refugee situations. And what we figured out was that the, the average stay in a refugee camp at this stage of the game is almost a decade um, and so uh, we're we're looking at doing um, some test sites that are specifically targeted at appropriate technologies for refugee situations, um, and doing some partnerships with that um, in the long term with the New Mexico State University system, both our local campus um, as well as the main campus, which is about you know an hour away from here. And so. Um, Excited about some long-term educational um, opportunities as well that would allow students to that are interested in um, sustainable technologies and whether that's on the agricultural side or on the engineering and construction side um, to be able to kind of come live on site and kind of live in you know a living working laboratory while. They're pursuing their studies so that they can have a way to get the formal education and engineering, as well as the hands-on application of that stuff at the same time. And so that's another kind of aspect where um, these veterans who are wanting to go do that, we're, we're creating uh, a system, part partly for people who are interested in becoming part of the community for a long term. But also for people who are just interested in exploring this technology, getting an education and then taking it someplace else, creating a way for them to do that, that is, uh, you know, kind of meets their needs and yet is connected to a, you know, sort of, you know, like a recognized formal education system where they're able to kind of put those together. And And we've, we're still in the initial phases of that, but... Um, the, the New Mexico State University system has been super excited to work with us on that. And we're we're excited uh, for where that's going to lead.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. Man, I'm really impressed with the holistic design nature from which you're approaching all of this and how many aspects you've taken into consider. And it's made me think that, you know aside from just the specifics of this project there are tons of elements in here that anyone could benefit from that anyone could benefit from and i'm wondering what advice would you give to our listeners who are inspired to build their own home but maybe don't know where to start
1: sure um, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll 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 do this from from a couple of directions one is that one of our goals as we move forward is that we're going to try to keep everything that we're developing just as open source as possible um, and so uh, we've got to do a little bit of work on the front side to make sure that we're protecting that technology, so that we can continue to use it. Um, but as soon as we've got that done, we'll be we'll be making that uh, that technology available to everybody. Um, on on the challenge to for for people that are interested in doing this on. Uh, on their own. The first thing that I would say is, if especially if you're talking about the like full blown trying to create community, which and again, we're just in the beginning phases of this um, in the Foxville community right now and still just getting stuff off the ground. Um, but find if your if your goal is to create a community, try to find a way to become part of a community for a while and and learn the lessons that you can. Um, from within that community but then the other is kind of goes back to I, i i said this before but it's 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 worth repeating when you're in that design phase you've got two environments that you've got to deal with one is your natural physical environment and the other is the regulatory environment and you've got to find the right place to get that done the right combination of those things that are going to match your skill sets and resources to get that done and for the, the and again the more daunting piece for many many people is that regulatory environment and so don't get so caught up in pursuing the ideal building or process that you never get it done and so I'll give you a, I'll give you a, for example of some of the things that we're working on right now as that our goal, um, the primary building technology that we're pursuing that we want to use is actually with tire bales, right? Pounding into tires um, works great, but man, it's labor intensive. And unless you've got an army of volunteer labor as Earthship often does, that's not practical for most people. So we're working on doing it with tire bales with where, where they take a hundred tires and, and compress them together and hold them together with galvanized metal bands to make a five foot square, two and a half foot tall, 2000 pound, you know, rubber block. Um, and so that's what we're looking at for our long term building technology. Well, it's taking us a long time to get that really kind of approved through the state, get the initial engineering done. And, and I mean, we're working on it. And in fact, we're working with the American Society of Civil Engineers to actually have a model building code done that has the potential of making it part of the standard building code. But that's a years-long process that we're working. Well, here in New Mexico, I could use something like Adobe or compressed-earth blocks and get the majority of the performance out of it with a methodology that's already standardized. And so simply by saying, okay, well, I can't use, you know, tire bales, the, the thermal mass structure that I want to, but I could use compressed earth blocks right now. And and simply by designing the glazing facing the winter sun and, you know, putting in the, the other systems that make that work, I can do that right away with very, very little red tape um, and, and get it done. And it's not the ideal thing that I wanted, but it's going to work. And I can do it right now. And so consider that regulatory environment piece and don't get so caught up on doing the perfect thing that you never move forward. Because a lot of times when we're working in, uh, working with these governments and trying to keep this stuff going, we've got to build some good faith with them over time and building a a more normal structure as far as their view. But then being able to walk them through that as it's working and showing them how that works, then they get comfortable with that and they see that you're really trying to do the right thing and you're concerned and then they're going to be much more likely to work with you on some of the more experimental stuff in the long term.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. So before I let you go here and I want to let you get back to your morning here. Could you give us uh, some contact information? How can people get in touch with you? And if you've got any upcoming events or ways that people can participate as well, let us know.
1: Yeah. So um, uh, if you look for Foxhole Homes on any of your social media sites, so so Facebook or YouTube, just search Foxhole Homes. You'll find us there. Our website is foxhole.org. Um, and you'll be, and at any of those three different places, you're going to be able to find email addresses or, you know, phone numbers and all that kind of stuff. So foxhole.org, um, or foxhole homes at either Facebook or YouTube. Um, so that's the contact information. Um, right now we are, we're, we've just wrapped up kind of, um, uh, our, our first kind of demonstration build on the 164 acres that's going to become, the the permanent community um, it's basically a greenhouse we'll, where we'll be doing tree propagation and that kind of stuff to work on getting the food forest going uh, the next build we're hoping to start either late February or early March um, which will be our first tire bale building but it'll be a workshop um, and uh, but largely that's going to be kind of weekendy kind of stuff because again that whole good fast cheap dichotomy um, Right now, I'm in a situation where from my day job, I've simply just run out of vacation time. I've spent, in the last three years, I spent 537 hours of vacation on Foxhole, and I just don't have any more. So it'll largely be weekend stuff, but we do have volunteers that are camping on site um, and and kind of tinkering away at some different projects along the way. And so, um, uh, again, hopefully we'll be starting that late February, early March, if folks want to come out and volunteer, um, the big pushes will be on the weekend. But certainly if folks have skills, they can continue to work um, kind of throughout time. And eventually, and this is frankly probably a couple of years down the road, we're working toward what will be a two-week education program that will help folks go through um, some design considerations as they're working on their own you know, design for their own sustainable home and whether that's wall systems or electrical systems or plumbing systems, kind of going through a checklist of what's realistic for them, again, both for their natural environment as well as their legal uh, and regulatory environment as they go. But that's that that's coming up. But it's, you know, a ways down the road right now so that we can help folks um, uh, work on getting designs for them that are really going to work.
0: Wonderful. It sounds like all good stuff. I'm definitely going to try and swing by there if I get a chance to visit the States again anytime soon. I've got some good contacts. I used to work as well in Taos, uh, away from the Earthship community, but really close actually and i would love to come and see all the things that you're working on the videos that you have on youtube and on the website are fantastic so if anybody's listening definitely check those out to get a better idea of what ted has been talking about and yeah ted thank you so much for taking the time today this was really eye-opening and some great perspectives especially on design and holistic approaches to your projects
1: thanks so much have a great day
0: all right you too take care bye thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops that we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we all share. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info@abundantedge.com or you can post your questions directly to the Abundant Edge podcast Facebook page to which there's a link in the show notes of this episode. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you again in next week's session.